Okay, I actually want you to uh, close your Bibles, take out a blank piece of paper and a pen. Just kidding. There will not be a pop quiz this morning. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 5. But you had a little bad feeling, didn't you, just for a second? I, I remember that feeling when uh, a, a professor would say that I, vividly. I don't have any nightmares any longer, but, but I do remember that feeling. You know, did I study the right things? Did I take good notes? Did I really get into the mind of the professor and know what the professor thought was important or valuable? Am I ready for this exam? Now, someday each of us will sit for an even more important exam. We'll be before the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ. Will we be prepared? Will we have, have valued the right things? Will we have gotten into the mind of the Lord and really understood what he thinks is important and valuable in this life? Or will we just have listened to the voices around us and live consistent with the world's value system? You really don't have to read the Bible very long to discover that God does not value things like we value things. Let me give you just a few illustrations of this. From the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the mourners, blessed are the meek, blessed are the persecutors. I, I don't naturally think that way. I, I think blessed are the rich, blessed are those who are, who are happy and joyful, blessed are those who are powerful and on top. Jesus went on, he said, it is more blessed to give than receive, but honestly, nine times out of ten, I'd rather be the receiver than the giver. Become first by being last. Become a leader by being a servant. Become great by being humble. Become free by being a slave. Find strength through weakness. Find wisdom through foolishness. Discover life through death. I don't think that on our own we would come up with a list like that. But James adds to that list. He adds one more. There's great poverty in riches and great riches in poverty. That's not how we normally think of life. In our culture, it's always better to have more. But James disagrees. I want you to read with me James chapter 5, verse 1. James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For your miseries which are coming upon you, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Wow, yikes, those are pretty harsh words. What is James saying? Is James saying, if you're rich, you're going to hell? That's not what James is saying. It's not that simple. In order to really understand James' concept of wealth and poverty, we have to get a sense of, of what the economy was like in James' day as compared to what the economy is like in our day. If we look at a 21st century Western economy, we have a pretty substantial middle class, smaller number of people who would probably be classified as poor, smaller number of people who are classified as rich, and there actually is some mobility between these classes. Not as much as we probably would like, but it is possible that you could be born in poverty and move into middle class and possibly even wealth. Now, in James' day, as in Jesus' day, it looked more like this. The vast majority of people were poor. Poor, poor. And then a few were rich, and there was a chasm in between, and you didn't cross. There wasn't any mobility from poverty into riches. So, this is what James has in mind when he thinks about the poor and the rich. 
Okay? Specifically, the poor came in two primary categories. The poor who were a little better off included small landowners and tenant farmers, those who had a, a small holding that they could farm for themselves, provide for their families, tenant farmers who would lease land and give a portion of the produce to the owner. The poor who were really bad off were day laborers and beggars, that is, those who went into the marketplace, uh, into a field, and tried to get a job for each day and bring home enough to feed their families for that day, or beggars who were dependent upon the generosity of other Jews just to survive. They all had one thing in common, and that is they lived hand to mouth. Their very existence was tenuous. If there was poor rains one year, this group could starve. By way of contrast, there was the rich, and there were four categories, possibly, that James had in mind of people when he refers to the rich. There was the Herodian family. Uh, From Herod the Great, he had descendants, and he had sons and daughters and nieces and nephews, and according to some estimates, Herod's family had uh, confiscated, mostly, not purchased, but confiscated up to half the land in Israel, was held by this one family. Second, there were four high priestly clans. They controlled all of the commerce that came through the temple. So all of the sacrificial system, that included a lot of wealth that was passing through, as well as some lands that had been given to the Levitical priesthood. There was the old aristocracy that still held on to some of their lands. Their lands had not been confiscated by Herod and his family. And then there were merchants. They didn't hold land, but they were part of the commercial system and trade, and so they were wealthy. These four groups are the ones that James probably has in mind, and they all also had one thing in common, and that is they got rich by immoral gain. And so in James' mind, when he talks about the rich, it's people who got there by taking from others. Because remember, in the economy in that day, since it is, it's, it's agrarian, it's based upon the land, the land was the, the basis of wealth. And it was fixed. And they weren't bringing new technologies online to get greater crops out of that land or bringing new lands into production. And so wealth was, was fixed. And people were not mobile. And the rich got richer by taking from the poor. Look at me in chapter 5 and verse 4. James says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, people came into your land and your property, and they worked for you, but you didn't pay them. Chapter 2, verse 6. It says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? It was a habit of the rich to uh, charge exorbitant interest rates. It was legalized loan sharking, and when people couldn't pay... They imposed fines and might even have them drug into court and tossed into prison. Okay? And when James thinks about the rich, this is what he's thinking about. Of course, there were exceptions. Remember, even in Jesus' day, there was a group of wealthy women who traveled with Jesus, and they primarily funded that ministry. There were wealthy, righteous people, but they were the exception. When James talks about the rich and the poor, he's talking about these two groups. Not the categories necessarily that we think of in our day and age, but that's what was going on in James' time period. And he has a message for each group. I want you to read with me in chapter 1 of James and verse 9. He says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory 
in his humiliation. Because like flower and grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. In other words, James says, this is a little bit contrary to the way you think, but there's actually great poverty in riches. There are four warnings that I have discovered in the Bible that God gives to the rich. The first is this, wealth will not last. It says in Proverbs chapter 23, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. <laughs> I discovered that a couple of years ago when uh, Tristan and I had worked for you know, like a decade to set aside money for retirement. And then in a matter of months, half of it was gone, just erased. I love that image. Wealth makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Like, there it goes. (laughs) Never to return and roost at our home. It's gone. It's gone. But if you're wealthy, you can get a false sense of security. God says your security does not rest in your wealth. I create wealth and I can remove wealth. Wealth is like An eagle with wings. It can be gone in an instant. It's not a good source of security. Not in this life and certainly not in the next life. Psalm chapter 49. David said this, Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. In other words, you can't take it with you. The currency of earth doesn't work in heaven. You can send it ahead, but you can't take it with But the risk is, for those who are wealthy, that they get a false sense of security from wealth. That's the first danger. That's the first warning. Second, carries great danger in other terms. Jeremiah records the Lord's words who says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and he knows me. If you want to be proud of something, God says, be proud of the fact that you know me. But it's easy for the rich to become proud of their possession because people ooh and awe at your car or your house. And if you're rich, they want something from you. And so they stop speaking the truth to you. They don't contradict you. And so the rich begins to believe that status comes from wealth. James is going to rail against this. We're going to look at it actually in a couple of weeks. Let's just briefly read his observation. Chapter 2 and verse 2. It says, If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, dressed in fine clothes, there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, And say, you sit here in a good place, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In other words, James says, God is not impressed with your wealth. He's the creator of all things. He owns all things. He is not impressed by wealth. There is no sense of status before God based upon what you possess. And so James says there shouldn't be status in the church based upon possessions because that's irrelevant to God. What matters? Let the rich man boast of this, that he understands and he knows me. 
That's what God values. To this one God will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at the word of God. But for the rich, it's easy to get a sense of security or a sense of status from possessing things. I want you to keep your place here in James and turn back with me to the Gospels, Luke, specifically Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he turned and says to the rest of the crowd, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Not even when you have an abundance is that what life is about. But it's easy for the wealthy to be consumed by what they own. And so he says, beware of greed, which, as you know, literally means in Greek to have more. One of the dangers of wealth is once you have some, you want more. And once you have a little more, you want even more. John Rockefeller was once asked, how much wealth is enough? You remember his response? Just a little bit more. It's one of the dangers of wealth. You have some, you want more. Notice how Jesus illustrates this. Verse 16, he told them a parable then saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. So he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. That's the definition of greed. Just a little bit more. And wealth itself begins to reach into the person's heart and squeeze out love for God. It can even reach in and squeeze out love for others. I have worked with many families that have been torn apart by money. Notice again how this whole issue got started. Someone said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I have counsel with families. They come in and they're about to receive an inheritance. And initially they were, they were thrilled. You know, what a blessing this is to receive an, an inheritance from our parents. But then brothers and sisters begin to fight about who would get what and who would get how much. And they begin to argue and fight. And then they decided the only way we can really resolve this is to hire lawyers. And they hired lawyers and they began to sue and to countersue. And sometimes it went to court. Sometimes they were able to settle out of court. And by the time the whole process was done, they weren't even speaking with one another and they had lost their families. I've watched it happen. I've talked with husbands, sometimes wives too, who work and work and work and work. And they work so much, they never see their families. 
And they're shocked that their families just don't understand that. They, 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 they go to their wives and their children or their husbands and their children and they say, you know, the reason I was working so much is because I wanted to provide for you these things, this bigger house, these nicer things. That's why I worked so much. Don't you understand? I was always gone because I love you. But you know, the only currency that works in family is time. James is saying, wake up. Wake up. What does God value? Perhaps God is saying, sell those cars and buy cheaper ones. Sell your house and get a smaller one and be with one another and, and, and pull the, the evil roots of a love for money out of your heart because it's strangling your love for me and it's strangling your love for others. That's a danger of wealth. Third, wealth, if gained immorally, brings judgment. I want you to read with me again chapter 5 in James and verse 4. James says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, it cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord who commands armies. That's what Lord of Sebaot means. The Lord who commands armies. In other words, God is paying attention. It's not sin to be wealthy, but God does care about how you became wealthy. And if you became wealthy, he says, by taking from others, God's paying attention and God will hold you accountable. There were two ways that wealth was taken in those days. Illegal means, that is breaking the law of Moses. That's what he's talking about in 5.4. But also things that were technically legal, but were unethical or selfish. Illustration of this in Isaiah chapter 5. It says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. Until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. What Isaiah is referring to there is someone's neighbor falls on hard times. And rather than going to that neighbor and helping that neighbor save home and land and keep family together, neighbor comes and offers high interest loans. Loans that can never be repaid. When this person defaults, joins house to house, land to land, and takes and takes and consumes and consumes. And guess what? It says pretty soon you realize you're dwelling alone in the land. It's unethical. It may be legal, but it's unethical. For you men and women who own businesses here in town, I I encourage you, get together with one another. Talk and pray and think. How can we make a profit and provide for our families? How can we make a profit and provide for our employees? How can we make a profit and do good for the community in a way that honors Jesus Christ in everything that we do? How can we hold one another accountable for this, remembering that what's most important is not maximizing profit, but honoring Jesus Christ? It's not sin to be wealthy. But God does pay attention to how a person becomes wealthy. He also pays attention to how we use our wealth. Look at me in James chapter 2, verse 13. James 2, verse 13 says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Skip down to 3 1 real quick. 
Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. See that judgment, judgment? We're going to talk about that more later. James is very concerned with the evaluation of our lives, particularly the evaluation of believers' lives. Verse 14, okay? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Now, as we get into James 2, I'm going to argue he's not talking about this person being an unbeliever because they won't give. He's talking about this person having a faith that is of no value to others. In other words, you have means, you have the opportunity to give. Someone comes and says, I'm cold. I'm hungry, and you say, God bless you. (laughs) Be warm. Somehow, be filled. But this is mine. Hands off. When I was growing up, um, we celebrated Halloween. I know, it's an evil holiday, but my sister and I celebrated Halloween. We didn't dress up like demons or anything. We just dressed up like fun stuff, pirates and whatever, you know. And we we went out to gather loot. And it was, it was awesome because my sister and I, we were really good trick-or-treaters. You know, we, we learned the houses where you could really score and we'd kind of loop back on those. And, you know, we would get at a great hall. We would come home and we would lay it all out on the floor. We'd do a little bit of trading, right, for things she liked and things I liked. And then I would scoop up all my candy and it was mine. And, and I, would, I would parcel my candy out. You know, I'd, I'd put a piece or two in my lunch, And I would spread it out. And by the time Halloween came around the next year, I still had candy. (laughs) A little insight into my personality, right? I still had candy. It was a crazy thing. My mom made me throw it away. And I'm like, Mom, it's still good. (laughs) No, it's a year old. You can start over. And I learned a lesson there. I learned a lesson. Because I had hoarded, I didn't get to enjoy all my candy. Some of it I actually threw away. Because I had hoarded, I didn't get to enjoy sharing. At least a significant portion of it I could have given away and had no lack myself. But I didn't get to enjoy it all, and I didn't get to enjoy the blessing of giving it to someone else, particularly my sister, who was always asking. (laughs) Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, I've seen a really horrible thing. Wealth hoarded by its owner to his own hurt. God cares about how we gather wealth. He cares about what we do with wealth. If you have means, you are morally obligated to share. Christians, if you have means, you are morally obligated to share. God has blessed you to give, not just to consume. With your family, with your friends, with your neighbors who have need, With the church, if you have means, you share here so others can worship who don't have means. You give to missions so that others can hear the gospel who wouldn't hear because God has given you means. That's why he blessed you, to share. If you don't have means, you're still morally obligated to share. To take even from your poverty and give a little. Remember, it's not the amount Because God doesn't evaluate things like we evaluate things. His economy operates on a completely different system. Do you remember Jesus when he was observing giving in the temple? And a rich man came in 
And man, he's just throwing in the coins. There were those brass receptacles. And so it's just going crash, crash, crash. And I mean, he's making a, a scene with his obscene giving. It's just like, wow, what an incredibly generous man. And his disciples are going, Jesus, Jesus, look at that man. How righteous is that? And Jesus says, mm, not really, not so much. Don't wait, 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 stop. See that woman? The, yeah, the one who just put in the two little tiny copper coins. She gave more. Whoa. The first will be last and the last will be first. You want to be great, become humble. You want to be a leader, become a servant. You want to give a lot, give a little. Don't just give out of your wealth, but give out of your poverty. Jesus doesn't evaluate things like we evaluate things. God doesn't need your money. <laughs> it's a surprise, isn't it? God does not need your money. God can just create wealth, just like that. God wants your worship. He wants your entire heart. And what you do with your wealth is an indicator of the condition of your heart. I find that often in church, people don't like to talk about money. Oftentimes that's because they feel like, man, the church is always trying to get my money. It's my money. Get your hands off my candy. It's mine. (laughs) They don't want to talk about it. Man, the church is about discipleship and worship, right? Yes. But one of the ways we worship is with our money. One of the indicators of our worship and our heart is our money. There are 2,000 verses in the Bible or more about money. Jesus talked a lot about money. Why? Because he was concerned about money? No. He's concerned about our heart. God doesn't need our wealth, but he longs for our worship. And money is dangerous. Because you get a little and you want more. And it can just creep into your heart and it can strangle your love for God. And as it strangles your love for God, it can damage your relationships with others around you. And so, James says, there is, in fact, great poverty in riches, contrary to what you might think. He also says, there's great riches in poverty. William Barclay said it very nicely. He said, the Bible does not condemn wealth as such, but there is no book which more strenuously insists on wealth's responsibility and the perils which surround those who are abundantly blessed with the world's goods. There is potential poverty in riches. There is potentially riches in poverty. Okay, read with me chapter 1 and verse 9. James 1 verse 9. James says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory, or literally is to boast in his high position. Is to boast in his high position. There are uh, three things that I observed that are potential riches for the poor. The first is a receptive heart. Chapter 2, verse 5. James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Remembering James' audience is, is primarily poor. There probably were some exceptions of wealthy people. In, in these congregations that had been scattered. But remember, they were probably born in Palestine, raised in Palestine, scattered, either because of famine or persecution, and they took their poverty with them. And James says, don't you remember that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith? How is that? Well, 
Part of what made these folks that he's writing to receptive to the gospel was their poverty. Because they were poor, every day they recognized God has to come through or we will starve. It made them receptive to the message of Jesus Christ. That is true everywhere that the gospel went. The gospel first found its foothold among the poor. 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds these believers, he says, For consider your calling, that is when God came to you and he invited you to have life in Christ. Consider this, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, that is, according to the world's evaluation. There were not many mighty, there were not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. He turns the world's value system upside down. And he says it is actually the poor who are rich in faith because daily they sense their need. On the other hand, it's hard for those who are wealthy, Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because the rich doesn't have a sense of need for God. My life is full. I am rich. I don't have need. Jesus confronted the church in Laodicea, book of Revelation, chapter 3. He confronted them for this. He said, because you say we are wealthy and do not have need, And you do not realize that you are wretched and naked and blind and miserable. Therefore, if you want to really be wealthy, come to me. And I'll give you gold that endures. I'll give you genuine wealth. But you can't get enduring genuine wealth anywhere but from me. See, every person is, in fact, poor spiritually. But not everyone recognizes it. And what James is saying is, it's the poor who are more likely to recognize their need for God. So, poverty can produce a receptive heart. Poverty can also give a position of honor. Again, chapter 1, verse 9. It is the brother of humble circumstances who is to boast in his high position. And this word for high position was used of the realm from which the Spirit descended and the realm to which Christ ascended. He's saying, poor, you are here. On earth, your status may be here, but in the eyes of God, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You have status. So set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are valuable in the sight of God. Even though you don't feel valuable or society doesn't see you as valuable, you are valuable in the sight of God and whose evaluation really matters. Just God's, just God's, and he's not impressed if you're wealthy or if you have status. He's impressed if you are in Christ and you have a humble and contrite spirit. Then you have status with God. This morning you may not feel as if you are valuable or worthy, but God says you are. And only God's evaluation matters. God says you are, in fact, so valuable The 2,000 years ago, I gave you what was most valuable to me. I gave you 
the life of my son. That is how highly I value you. You are worth the sacrifice of my son. That's how much I love you. And if that is God's declaration of your worth, it is true. No matter how you feel and no matter what others say, that is how valuable you in fact are. Third, there's an opportunity for great reward. Chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Remember last week we talked about enduring trials, which really set the stage for a lot of the rest of the book. James talked about various trials, any form of trials, and now he has entered into the first trial. So specifically for this group of people, you are experiencing the trial of poverty, of lack, of need. The trial of being oppressed by those who have wealth. The the trial of being persecuted for your faith. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres, who stays under, remember, endurance, who stays under the trial and looks through it and trusts in God. That person is blessed, which again doesn't mean happy, right? James is not a fool. He's not an idiot. He's not saying, isn't it fun to be poor? That's not what he's saying. There's nothing pleasant about poverty. There's nothing pleasant for these people about living day to day, hand to mouth. That's not pleasant. But he said you can experience blessing, that is, the favor of God. Even in the midst of that trial, There's a great illustration of this word. Uh, Years ago, the island of Cyprus was described as blessed or makarios. And the idea was this. If you were born on Cyprus and you were raised on Cyprus and you never left the island, you could have a rich and wonderful life. All that you needed to be full and complete in life was on the island. It was makarios. It was blessed. That's the sense of what blessing means. It means whole, complete favored. You don't need ultimately anything other than what God has provided for you. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because when he has been proven, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Different crowns were worn in those days, the crown of of sovereignty, the diadem crown, but this is the crown of victory. The one that was given to the athlete who trained and trained and competed and won. And at the end of the race, that crown was placed upon his head. And he went back to his hometown and he was praised and honored. In some cities, they would knock a hole in the wall, city wall and they would build a new gate in his honor. And the idea was, if, if such a person lives within our city walls, we can afford another hole in the wall. He's so great. He's so great. And they'd write poems, be exempt from taxes. Children would be educated for free. There was wealth that was associated with it. There was status and honor and praise. And James says, for the one who has endured this trial and honored God through it, he will receive the crown, which is life. Praise and honor and approval from God. Because someday we will stand before the judge of the universe and he will evaluate our lives. It's not a pop quiz. You can be prepared right now. You can dig deeply into God's word and see what does God value? What is important to God? What is enduring and lasting? 
So we probably don't fit in either of these categories of poor and rich technically as James describes them, but this still applies to us. Let me give you a couple of thoughts as we close. First, don't trust in what you have and don't lust for what you lack. If you have means, great. But that doesn't give you status before God and it can't provide you security because wealth has wings. Like an eagle, it can fly away. And if you're too young to have experienced this, just trust everyone else around you. Okay? Don't trust in it. It's not what makes you important and valuable. Even if a person has an abundance, that is not what makes life important. It's not what your life consists of, Jesus says. And if you lack, don't lust. It's not wrong to, to... want more and to try to get more to provide for your family. But if you don't have it, don't, don't long for it in, in, in sense of loving it. Paul tells Timothy, he says, you know, those who, who love wealth have gotten themselves into a snare, foolish, harmful desires that just plunge men into ruin and destruction. Don't love it. Instead, live for what lasts. Great stories surround the the tragedy of the sinking of the Titanic. My favorite are those of rich people who ran from the lifeboats back to their cabins. And as they ran back to their cabins, they reached past their gold and their silver and their jewels and grabbed an apple or an orange and then rushed back to the lifeboat. See, in a matter of moments, their circumstances changed completely. And as a result, their value system changed completely. And they reached over the gold and silver and let it sink to the bottom of the ocean. They reached for an apple or an orange. Which at that moment in time was more valuable than gold. And someday you and I will have a a dramatic change of circumstances. It's called death. Um, You're going to face it. I'm going to face it. And in that moment, we will move from this world into the presence of God. And the value system that is honored by this world will not be valued by God. Do you want to be wealthy? you want to be rich? I think generally that's a pretty natural feeling for humans. But do you want to just be rich now or do you want to be rich forever? Do you want to stand before God and have him say, well done? The world was constantly screaming at you its value systems, but you listened to me. To become great, become a servant. To become first, become last. To become wise, become foolish, and listen to me. Become rich, become poor. Enjoy what I have blessed you with, and share, and give, and invest forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have told us ahead of time what you value. We stand before you. We will not need to be surprised or shocked that you value the widow's might, more than all of the wealth of the self-righteous. You value a cup of water given to someone in need. You value humility, not pride and self-assertion. And you are rich. And you have need of nothing. And so you have given to us. And I pray, Father, that we would take all that we have and even out of our lack, that we would learn to give and to share and to live for things that really matter, things that will last forever. 
Thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.